right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Inside Writing. Uh, we're in season two now. I'm so happy to be back. I miss doing this. So, uh, like I said, this is season two, so we're not going to be talking about book-length projects anymore. Uh, rather, we're going to be talking about writing and publishing shorter works. So, essays, poems, articles, and today's subject, which is short fiction. A couple notes about what we're going to do differently in season two. We aren't going to be doing the Twitter pitch parties after the show, but we definitely still want you to get involved and we want to hear from you. So you can connect with us on Twitter. Let us know what you think. And during the show, be sure to uh, get your questions in using the Q&A function. Some of you are already doing that, so good for you. Uh, on the bottom of your dashboard, you'll see Q&A. You can ask questions there. A note about that as well, you'll see a fourth screen up here on the Zoom. It says Gotham Writers. We have a Gotham Helper who's gonna be monitoring Q&A. So if you have any logistical questions about inside writing, about where to find it or anything like that, you can post the questions there and they'll get back to you. Um, yeah, so the question and answer, anything related to the actual discussion of the day, I'll get to those later on in this show. All right, so now we wanna actually talk about short fiction. Uh, as always, I'm gonna start with a quote. This one is from Truman Capote. He said, when seriously explored, the short story seems to me the most difficult and disciplining form of prose writing extent. Whether control, whatever control and technique I may have, I owe entirely to my training in this medium. More on that quote later, but now let's meet our panelists. First off, the managing editor of Zoetrope All Story, Michael Ray. Hello, Michael. Let's see, I'm coming. Hey, everybody. Thanks for there having me. Thanks, Absolutely. Josh. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Uh, and a writer who has been published in such places as Granta, Story Glacia, and Willard and Maple, Jamie Carnes. Hello, Jamie. Hi. There she is. <laughs> Hi, Jamie. Hi. All right, so we usually start these episodes with a definition, and sometimes it's seemingly the simplest concepts that are the hardest to define, but I want to try this anyway. So, Michael, if you had to define what a short story is in the simplest terms, how would you define it? Oh, well, let's start with an easy one then. Um, I think there aren't really simple terms. And uh, I was actually thinking, uh, Josh, with your quote that um, I'm, I often uh, think just sort of in, in the utility of, of the short story and why it's my favorite form of narrative. Um, there's a William Faulkner quote where he says that all novelists are failed poets, that serious writers um, attempt first uh, poetry because it's the most unrelenting form. Uh, every every word has to have a purpose. The cadence is important. Uh, failing that, writers try short fiction, and failing that, they try novels. Uh, I think, I guess, a short story. What uh, the way I would think about it is that it you can have all it can it can be deep and complex in narrative. You can develop multiple characters, and yet you can have all of it in your head at once, and you can attend to all parts of it at once. Um, it, it kind of builds toward a frisson of some sort, like a feeling. Um, and uh, I mean, I, you know, I know so many uh, novelists who really feel like they develop, I mean, along with kind of what Capote and Faulkner are saying, like short fiction is, is the unrelenting form. You cannot make mistakes. Um, you can make mistakes in a novel and recover. You can in a short story. And that they feel like, writing short fiction really elevates their work. Um, novels sell, but writing short fiction makes them better writers. Mm, I like that. Jamie, anything to add to that? Um, to add to that. Well, I think, well, I, 
think Faulkner might have been wrong, um, <laughs> only in the sense that when you look at writers like Grace Paley and Amy Hempel, um, who don't, you know, they're not temperamentally suited to the novel and they were successful poets um, and they write on the sentence level, you know, I think Juno Diaz calls it like gem cutting and Chuck Palahniuk says, you know, every sentence is tortured over. So in a sense, I think they're successful poets who um, were also extremely successful short story writers. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to get into what it takes to actually write a short story now. So Jamie, I want to start with you. For you, how does the story begin for you? Is it a character, a scene, a plot point? Whenever, you're, whenever your idea first takes hold, what form does it take? Ooh, um, there, it's always different, I think. Um, it's character. It's character or it's overhearing something. Um, I was once on the L train and I heard two women say, oh, I, you know, they're talking about adoption and one said, oh, Asian babies are so kitschy. I thought, that's brilliant. And then I created new characters and put that into to something else. So I think it's just about listening um, and then hearing the musicality of the people speaking. Mm -hmm. So I enter through character always, yeah. Gotcha. And, and Michael, when you open a submission or when you read a short story, is there one aspect that you're drawn to more than the other? Is it character for you as well? Um, I mean, it's not one aspect. Uh, you know, I mean, we, we receive um, around 10,000 submissions annually and we publish uh, 20 maybe, you know, 16 to 20 stories a year. Um, and still with every issue, we're scrambling to fill it. Uh, I think there are a lot of people writing. Um, I think that the sort of, it's, it's just, it's tough to really write uh, really, really good work. Um, what I'm looking for is there's, uh, I mean, I think of it, something that you can find in, in film, something that you can find in music where the art form or in a, a pain, a photograph, like something where like the art form can affect you emotionally before you can kind of logic out why. Uh, with a short story and with reading, there's so much like just sort of logical reconciliation. I mean, you're resolving a shape into a letter, you're grouping letters into words, you're grouping words into sentences and ideas. And so there's so much happening there. Um, and what I'm looking for is a story that is, it's so immersive that I can forget that I'm reading. Um, that things are, that the story is affecting me emotionally. Um, and I, I, if you stop me and ask me why, I couldn't say exactly why even though there is that mediation of the intellect happening but the story is so immersive that you you get you kind of like transcend i always thought think about it as like it transcends the imposition of the page and um uh, a lot of uh a lot of writers i work with i mean i'm i guess i have somewhat of a reputation for being a, a pretty uh deep editor um and they'll like we'll sort of make passes at a level of of ideas and sort of structure and then really get down to like uh, grammar. I mean, like debating, uh, you know, whether uh, a word following a colon should be capitalized or lowercase. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that sort of granularity is that once you create that, that kind of fugue state that, that we're going for in our magazine, at least, and, and that I feel like my favorite writers can achieve, I, I, you don't want anything to break that. Anything that, like any sort of mistake, any extra space, anything that sort of reminds the reader that he or she is reading 
um, is what we're trying to avoid. And I think like with our magazine, um, you know, we'll publish, I'm just looking for things that have that potential. I engage in editorial process and everything we publish. Um, so I'm not looking for like a polished story in any regard. I mean, if something comes in and there are misspellings or, you know, any, like, don't worry about it. Like that's unimportant to me. What's important is that it, it seems like it has the potential to achieve this sort of feeling and effect that we're going for in our work. And hopefully that's what the magazine reflects. Um, and then I'm kind of judging based on the writer's, you know, strengths and weaknesses. I'm sort of assessing strengths, assessing weaknesses and trying to decide like first does the right, does the story have that potential? And then does the writer sort of evidence the strengths to overcome whatever the weaknesses are. And, and, you know, and to Jamie's example, talking about character, I think like if it's a, you know, it's sort of a, I don't know if they're like three primary characters and two are really well drawn and one isn't like the writer can obviously write character and just sort of lost track of this one. And I can help that. I can sort of ameliorate that process. But if a story's like, if it doesn't have that potential, you know, it's, it's not really for us or if a story, you know, there's certain things like if it's supposed to be funny and it's not funny. Like I, I don't know, I can't help you with that. But, uh, but I think that, um, but again, I think for us, it's like, I'm always looking at that potential. And when you're, when we're accepting stories, at such a, 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 a vanishingly minor rate. To me, um, I try not to get like kind of bogged down. I just don't have the time to get bogged down in sort of gradations of good. Like, well, this is the best thing I've read in a month. Or like, it's it's either it's sort of publishable or it's not. And just to sort of put a point on it, um, I uh, for our fall our winter issue, our fall issue just came out. Our winter issue is due. I have to have the lineup. I'm acquiring the lineup by um, next Friday, and I've uh, I've acquired nothing so far. So I have to have the whole lineup by next Friday. I've acquired nothing. And there are a few, you know, there are a few things like that are potentials. Yeah. Um, but this is the way it goes every time. It's like, it's not like when we're publishing 20, um, we could be, you know, they're like 10 waiting for next year. Like it is trying to fill the issue. It's just so, and hopefully that, 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 I think as a writer, you can sort of see that as intimidating or you can see it as really empowering because like all that matters is the quality of the work. If you can write work that sort of achieves this, there's an entire industry of people who are out looking for you. Yeah. You touched on a lot of things I want to get back to with the editorial process. That, that's all fascinating. Um, I, I want to get back to, to this idea of, of voice and writing and what a writer's voice is. And, you know, this is something when I'm teaching that I always find students have the hardest time defining what their voice as a writer, what makes them unique as a writer. So, Jamie, I wanted to turn this to you. When it comes to finding your voice, is there a way, like, how do you identify who you are as a writer? What makes you, what, what's your brand as a writer? Um, that I don't have a brand. I mean, I th it's funny you opened with a quote. I'm just going to be a contrarian today. You opened with a quote with, by Capote, and I think one of the things that he rested his career on was this idea that right from your own experience, you only have this limited. And I disagree. I think writing is a process of discovery. So when we write what we don't know, some amazing things can happen. Um, so I would like to think that it's not, that my voice changes, uh, that the narrative voice specifically changes. Um, and what I'm searching for uh, changes with every time I sit down, you know, with pen to paper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if, and if, yeah, if I can just echo that, I, I totally agree. I think that 
Um, uh, the idea, I think a lot of writers do sort of focus on this idea, especially when they're thinking about publishing, about sort of developing this sort of voice and, and this idea that, yeah, sort of a brand or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, I think that that's looking at the work in like in, in sort of in the backward way. Um, the relationship that matters in a store, in anything, in any form of art, isn't between the creator and the work. It's between wow. the viewer and the work. And that's what you're always trying to serve. And yeah. so when, you know, and, and I mean, we can get into this a bit later, but I, I think like the ways that it, that it, that that is enacted, for instance, in short fiction, um, something that I end up working with our writers a lot on, and this is people, you know, people who are publishing for the first time, people who've won Pulitzer's and Nobel's, it's kind of up and down the scale. Um, this working on this idea of, of um, reserving room in the story for the reader to participate in the understanding. So like anything I describe about, or you describe, or anybody about like, this character is sad, and you can explain why that character is sad, and you can, ex you can compare it to, you know, whatever rain coming down a window, whatever it is. That's not going to be as meaningful as if you can develop a character and then put that character in a, in a, in a, in a setting that we understand as being distressing emotionally and then allow us as the reader to have sympathy for that character and to imbue our own memories of stuff, our own memories of sadness, our own memories of regret into that. And, and to it, it, that's sort of the active participation of the reader. That's when, I mean, when you think about the stories that are most important to you, at least for me, like I, I almost, I feel like they're kind of books or records. Like I feel like they're kind of mine. And I can go back to them and read them at different points in my life when I have different experiences and I can find new truths in it that resonate with, because I'm a different person when I come to them. And that's the really rich work. I mean, I always think that when we're publishing, uh, you know, by the time I'm public, like when I'm acquiring something, by the time it, it is in uh, galleys, I would have through edits and everything else, I, I'm going to go through this thing, you know, 40, 50 times. If it always means the same thing i sort of think of my own experience like that's great but it's i don't know it just feels sort of like somewhat shallow um or like it's too narrow and i think that that's been um a i'm, I'm i guess i'm leveraging josh your advice to sort of uh transgress here but uh, uh but that that sort of that lays uh i think one of the issues uh, currently with mfa programs is i think that um, I start seeing a lot of work coming out that's like really honed to do like one thing. And it has like this one effect. And it's almost like this trick. And at the end, it's like, okay, I got that trick. You got that trick. Yeah. So like, I, I only get that. I can only be tricked once. And so I've been tricked and we've all been tricked in the same way. And I think that there's... It's unsatisfying to be tricked. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And the real work that you that I love, at least, is the work that I feel like, yeah, I mean, like it's it's... It's, it, it feels mine in some ways, the reader. And I think that that's, I think if you're a great writer, there's certain, I mean, I, I, you know, there's writers like, you know, Karen Russell, like anything you read, it's like, oh yeah, that's Karen's work. But, and yet when you look story to story, like the style of the story is in service to the story. Like it's in service to the characters. Like there is, that's what's important. Yeah, she's so great at children too. I love this idea she talks about give children all the access to language that they can, but blunt their experience. And she's definitely somebody I return to when I have students trying to write from the, the child's point of view. I love that. Yeah, that was, uh, that her, uh, her, her, her first novel, uh, Swamp Landy, had actually started in, the, in our magazine as a story called Ava Wrestles the Alligator. alligator and, um, yeah. and so she was, 
you know, she was really young. I think she, she, I think she'd had something in the New Yorker at that point. Um, and we had, I mean, we, we changed, uh, POV and, and gone, and we'd had a lot of these conversations about like, how do you maintain that child perspective? Like, how do you imbue, uh, how do you not overstate? Like, how do you sort of make a child an interesting character with access to her own feelings and a way to convey those feelings without, because um, you so often, yeah. but so often you read these things where it's like, I think people like to read about teenage or write about teenagers. I think, and they'll, and, and there's our kids and there's a sense of trying to make them interesting in sort of an adult way. And we had a lot of these conversations about like, you need yeah. to make her interesting, but authentic to who she is. And let the reader experience it. Let the reader, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So all this talk of, of short stories being able to do more than one thing, it segues into another, since we were talking about quotes as well, there's a quote by F. Scott Fitzgerald. He said that you need that one key emotion to find your short story. So I wanted to hear what your take on that was. Jamie, what does that mean? Did you build your short stories around one key emotion? Can you look back at a story and pull out no, one emotion? No way. No way. Um, no, absolutely not. I'm, uh, I let my characters, I, it's so, it sounds so pretentious, but I sort of put them on stage and they, they become something else, right? They, they teach me who they are. Um, so it's a process of, again, discovery. Um, I don't try to force anything upon them. I don't, I think that to me is more plot driven, right? Like things being put upon your characters and I prefer my characters to have agency. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Mike, Michael, what do you think about, is that an accurate quote? Could you look back at a short story and pull out one emotion from that story? Well, I, I guess I think about it in terms of um, intention and I think different writers and sort of process and different writers have different processes. Um, I know, um, like Charles D'Ambrosio, um, and do people, are people reading Charlie still out there? No, I, he should be. I, I mean, I feel like he, yeah, I feel like he's the sort of greatest, maybe the greatest story writer of, of this sort of generation. He's, um, he's teaching at Iowa now, but he's just, and he's, uh, he just, he hasn't written in a while, but, um, He's an incredible, incredible artist. And uh, so he wrote a story. Uh, it was in the New Yorker. It was called Drummond and Son. And um, maybe 15 years ago. And what he wanted to do with the story, he said, is that he wanted to build to a moment where a, um, a parent could, uh, where a father could tell a son that he loved the son and it wouldn't be sentimental. So he just kind of went in. He's like, this is what I want to do. and he does that. And it, it is like a, a pivotal moment, but so much grew out of that. Right. Um, I, and you know, it's like there are other writers who, um, I mean, I like David Besmogus is a guy who he'll sort of walk around with a story and kind of like, know essentially like the last line and like how it concludes. Um, I think different, you know, and then going back to Faulkner like, he talks about like starting the sound of the fury, um, from that image of like a, a, a girl, in a tree with like dirty, um, like uh, whatever undergarments they wore at the time were. And like, that's what the whole, and like, that's how the story starts. And like for the book starts and like, that's how it all grows. Um, but I think, yeah, you want to, uh, I think you, you wanna, I, I mean, so there are a million ways to go about it, but I think generally like, I mean, Jamie's saying, I think your characters do have to have agency because, um, 
I think you want things to happen in the story that surprise you as you're writing it. Um, that seems to me probably where you're going to get sort of like the frisson of vitality that's going to make a story work. And then um, you I think control you have interesting it when you edit it, right? I mean, then um, you hone it in, you bring it in. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I guess I relate it um, to, I mean, a lot of the writing I do is, uh, is for film. And so it's, it's similarly um, where it's similar in form to a short story where you can kind of control all aspects of it at once. Um, but uh, you still need, you're developing character, you're sort of developing a world. Um, there are more strictures because you're having to deal with like budget and actually something that can get made and requests from studios and stuff like that. But um, I think that so much of it is this idea of like you create interesting characters, um, you put them in where they can reveal themselves and in ways that are like authentic and natural and that the, that the again, like that the reader can understand, that the reader doesn't need to be told. Um, that there feels like the action is sort of happening in the story rather than it's happening at a distance and there's somebody who's a buffer between you and that action who's sort of explaining to you everything that's happening. So, um, yeah, I think people, you know, I think everyone's, you, you talk, I think like you talk to a thousand writers, you're going to get 998 different processes. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but that's, that's kind of the fun, I mean, that's the fun thing about the, like you, you try, I mean, this is what I love talking to other writers and just like how they do what they do. I think uh, George Saunders is someone who's kind of a fascinating guy just um, about like, he's really good at demystifying his process. Um, I've known him probably for, I don't know, 20 years, but, and in the beginning I thought it was sort of like a sort of a shtick thing. Like, oh, I'm George, like I'm sort you know, I went to the Colorado right. School of Mines and like, I'm like sort of like, you know, sort of anti-intellectual in a way, but it is really <laughs> yeah. the way that he approaches his work. And there's like sort of a, like a, I mean, it's not, it's, it's almost like he looks at it as sort of plumbing, like that it's, yes. you, you put these things together and each one needs to like deliver something to, to the reader. And so, I mean, he talks about like when, like he'll, he'll start a story with like his whole idea is like, don't, like, don't, don't feel like you need to earn the right to write a story. Come up with a ridiculous idea. Like anything can be an idea. And yeah. if you can write your way into it, so you just start off with this scenario and I'd relay his sort of common scenario crude, but you start off with this scenario <laughs> and then you just sort of write your way into it. And then if it, if it gets to a point where it's not working, I mean, he, he really says like, I'll just kind of work my way back sentence by sentence and find a sentence that like either I don't like, or I just change a decision in that sentence and then it takes it in a different direction. And then that sort of works for him. I mean, he's like, uh, he's very much this, of this idea that like you turn off like the internal critic and um, give yourself, like believe in yourself and just like start writing. And you know, it, it's not like this mystical walking in the woods in a way. It's sort of like um, you find your destination along the way and you kind of get there and anyway. He believes in the hard the work fascinating of writing, guy. Right? Yeah. Now, yeah. If you ever get a chance to kind of hear him talk or anything, it's it's a really and you can find some of this stuff online. I mean, I feel like David Foster Wallace was similar um, in these people who kind of illuminate their work, um, and you can find their talks. You know, like on um, on on uh, on YouTube. Um, somebody else. It's yeah. Yeah, and, and somebody else is like uh, Yi Yun Lee when she sort of talks about language. You know. Mm -hmm. uh, 
writing in an adopted language is a really interesting thing for any writer, even not a writer writing in, I mean, not writing in a second language, but just um, like, I mean, I, she can say it much better than I can, but just look up some of her, her talks and they're fascinating. So I, I want to shift gears a bit and talk about what it, about the publishing process of short fiction. So once you've written the story, Jamie, how do you know when a literary magazine is, is the right place for you to send your work to? Well, you read more than you write. I mean, you should be reading always. You, you should subscribe to these magazines. Um, and once you find something that feels familiar, I mean, I know that Michael mentioned, you know, I know he's not Gordon Lish or, or uh, you know, something like that, but he's willing to work with writers. And I think that's something a lot of new writers are afraid of, that editors aren't willing to work with something that might need, you know, an arc or, or whatever. Um, so you just find a fit, right? Um, you choose your top five, you send them out. I haven't done this in so long. So I, I, I'm like the vanilla, you know, the manila envelope and the rejection letter. But uh, yeah, that, that's what I did anyway. And, and how did you start looking? Did you just pick random literary magazine to start reading and see if it was a good? Uh, oh, no, of... I had visions of grandeur. I aimed high. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I only set my work to the top. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and Michael, in the simplest terms possible, what does Zoe Trope look for in, in, in submissions? Mm -hmm. I mean, again, I, I think uh, going back to what I was saying earlier, it's, um, it's uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I read as in the same way that all of you do, I'm sure. I think I, I am sort of a, trying to kind of like discern and assess um, the sort of ambitions and, the, and the, the ideas and the sort of primary purpose of a story um, and then the facility with which that's achieved. And I am looking for that. Like these, I mean, for like, we're looking just to publish stuff that really feels um, transcendent in this way that, that like, I always feel like I'm trying to curate the magazine, like not necessarily for myself, but um, for people who really, really love stories and people who don't know that they love stories, like who think that right, reading is arduous. Um, and as much as I feel like I, I talk to our writers a lot about like, trust our audience, you don't need to like, you know, exposition is unnecessary stories don't need to be didactic um like they wanted they want to do that work but i think even people who don't uh i think people find writing sort of a chore because they don't feel like there's a role in it for that i mean reading it's sort of a chore because it doesn't feel like this sort of active process sometimes it just feels like you're just sort of sitting there being talked to or you're doing the work and i think if you can engage people and like what you're not i'm not telling you about this you know loss of someone I loved in my life. Like I'm, I'm putting, I'm, I'm drawing, like I'm drawing that up. I'm, I'm creating this sort of like vessel that you can fill up with those feelings. Mm -hmm. And that, that, and maybe by creating, um, like the, the screenwriter, Paul Schrader, um, you know, wrote like Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, um, Mosquito Coast, all these films. He always talks about how like, you can't like, I mean, the example, I mean, the example he uses is, um, you know, that you can't talk about, you can't write about your mother, but you can write about like a car or you can write about something that like reminds you of your mother. And then you can, what, if you're doing that, it's like, it becomes about more than your mother. It becomes about like loss or love or whatever. And, yeah. and you allow people to feel to, 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 there's a universality that happens. And he always says that too. He's like, you know, I kind of like, 
what I love about those old films is like hopefully those filmmakers kind of disappear. They sort of evanesce. And what matters is, is the person sitting in the chair in the film. And I think like, and he felt like we'd gone through a period in film where sort of writer or the creators were too kind of forward and trying to sort of put their stamp on everything. But, um, but anyway, that's, I feel like that's what we're looking for is um, stuff that feels exciting. And it, and it, and it, and it, uh, it, I mean, it just, it creates like it, it, it sort of changes your body temperature as you're reading. I mean, it, like it, it pulls out of you. And, um, you know, I think uh, we used to, when I started with the magazine back in, um, I started editing the magazine back in 2002 and we were publishing like seven or eight, nine stories an issue. Um, and I always felt like there were a few that, I mean, to be honest, like I didn't feel like we could, generate that much even getting 10 or however many thousand submissions we couldn't generate that many stories that we felt this good about and the magazine has gotten uh it, we've we haven't cut the word count necessarily so much but we are doing more like four or five stories because i feel like that's what we can put forward that we feel like are of that caliber that um that you know that i'm looking for i think a great and, but I, yeah. oh i was just gonna say a great example is um the ladders that you just published Recently. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it really brought me back to the invasion of outer space, which was, I think, a decade old from the New Yorker. But speaking of tone, like, there's a writer with tone, right? With he has his own voice. The moment I started reading about the ladders, I was like, oh, of course I know who this writer is, right? Without even looking. Um, but yeah, it's it's yeah, an experience, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And it's, and the, the thing that's fun. Um, so like that was Stephen Milhauser, and you know, he's a guy who's won a Pulitzer, and. Um, has been, I mean, I think he won that Pulitzer for Martin Dressler back in the 90s, but um, yeah. that, you know, he's someone who's had this career. Um, I guess this is the second or third story we've worked on together. And these guys, like, you know, Zootrope, like, whatever. I mean, we're, we have a circulation of like 20, 25,000. Like, it's not a huge magazine. Um, it's not, it's not making <laughs> uh, Milhouse. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, and it's not making like Milhouse's career. But Steve, like he wants to, in, like, I don't know, it's like inspiring to me still like that he just, he, like he wants to, like, I mean, that story went through four or five edits of like really deep kind of really? going back and forth. Oh yeah. And he wants, like that he wants to get in at that level. Um, I mean, that's what kind of keeps me working on it. It's like with people who just like, they just want to get better. And it's, you know, like there, there are, um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, occasionally I'll sort of run into, I mean, there's, I wouldn't want to name the person. There's a, a writer who's won, I think she won a Pulitzer and she's become very sort of more prominent lately. And, um, I'd edited a, a story for her maybe, I mean, it was 10 years ago or so, but, um, there were, I'd sent her an edit and then I heard back from her agent who said, um, yeah, you know, the, the story was already going to be in a collection at Random House. Like, she's already been through it. I was like, all right. Um, You're not Maxwell Perkins. What's wrong with her? <laughs> I was like, well, there's like, a, you know, there are these sort of chronological inconsistencies. I mean, there's right. sort of like an age gap between these two characters at this point, and there's an age gap, and it's expanded at this point. So there are like some errors that probably nobody notices. But if people notice... Um, I, I, it doesn't serve the story. Right. And so her agent was like, oh yeah, yeah. Like, let me talk to her. And then got back. And, um, the excuse was, uh, well, the story's part of the oral tradition. And, 
there was nothing about the story that would make it part of the oral tradition, but it, it was just sort of disappointing to me. Um, and I haven't worked with this person since. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's just because it's like, if you're not, I'm not saying like, and, and we can talk about the editorial process, but like, I don't think that you need to, um, I'm not saying that you need to take edits, but just at least if somebody, if, if some, yeah. And if like, if somebody's pointing something out to you, like the writers, ultimately the, the final arbiter of the story's form. But yeah. if I'm pointing out to you issues that are just fundamentally wrong, yeah. um, don't be afraid. I think for, and I, and I talked to another uh, good friend of hers afterward who was basically saying that she felt like just seeing these sort of, it, it had shaken her confidence in um, sort of the, the credits where, where the book was. Oh, okay. She was dealing with a new editor at Random House. I, I think he'd been somewhat intimidated by her and things had gone through quick, had gone through cleanly and she felt like, oh, wow, this is great. And then just pointing out these little issues had compromised her confidence in the rest of the, of what was going to be in the book. And she felt like then she didn't want to, she didn't want to confront that. And personally for me, like, uh, you know, I don't really respect that. No, it's too you know, Like I feel like, yeah, like if you don't, like if, and I think a lot, you know, I, the writers who've like done everything um, yeah. and that are still trying to get better, uh, those are the writers who do get better. And I feel yeah, like, you I, know, I, I feel you, like can I saw, you can also ossify. Yeah, I saw uh, Tobias Wolf a decade ago read from Bullet in the Brain, right? And he changed so much and the audience was gasping. And at the end he was like, what? You know, well, excuse my language, but what, you know, the way he speaks, right? What's yeah. your problem? It's my story. It's been 30 years or whatever since yeah. I wrote it. And so I have every right to change whatever I want. I'm a different man and a different writer since then. Um, and I, I really respected that because he's constantly searching, right, for better sentences, better language. He has more now. So, yeah, and I think it sort of segues into, you know, if we're going to talk sort of, I mean, I, about sort of publishing, I do feel like, um, for the writer, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like ideally there should be sort of a church state line between, um, <laughs> writing and, and, and publishing. Um, I think what, if you are a serious writer, um, and if you're a writer who's going to write for a long time, um, what defines that is that you're writing. I mean, it, it has nothing to do with publishing, like you're writing. Um, I think the writers who have careers, I mean, the writers I find most, uh, affecting and I, or my favorite writers or writers who would be writing if they, if, even if they weren't publishing. And, you know, there's a great, um, there's a, there was a great essay that, um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote that was in the New Yorker, uh, years ago called late bloomers. If anyone, you can, it's still at their website. And he was basically talking about, um, this kind of like overnight sensation of Jonathan Safran Foer um, versus uh, Ben Fountain, who is someone who um, wrote for more than a decade of everyday writing before getting anything published. Larry Brown was similar. Um, and how these, and the thing that's sort of, I mean, fascinating about uh, Ben is uh, he was a guy who, so he'd written, uh, I think we'd published maybe four of his stories. I don't, I, I, hopefully people know Ben. Um, we'd published like four of his stories uh, and they were all sort of about, they're kind of like this 
I mean, not in style, but kind of in substance, somewhat like this Graham Greene idea of like, you know, Americans abroad and sort of like these, these clashes between American culture and international and, and other cultures. And um, I thought in the sort of wake of 9-11 that um, the, the focus of, of American fiction would turn more to our place in the world and trying to understand that and less to like, you know, sort of like John Cheever navel gazing, like in the suburbs or something. And uh, so oh, then was, gazing? what's that? I love Cheever. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, I, I love him too. I just think yeah, that yeah. the world is, it's a, it's a, a anyway, it's sort of yeah. regionally somewhat of a smaller world. Um, internally bigger, but regionally smaller. And so he was think- a, uh, Ben was a guy like wherever I was in New York talking to, um, oh, sorry. No, 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 it's okay. Go ahead. Uh, but, so when, Ben was a guy, whenever I was in um, like New York, I'd have, you know, lunch with um, like Susan Camel and Dan Meneker and people like this. And like, they'd be talking about, uh, you know, people like they were coming, people I should be reading. And I'd be telling them people that they should be reading. This is, uh, this is when I was a new editor. This is 15 years ago. And I was always mentioning Ben and like people should be reading Ben. And um then I'd come and they'd be like, oh yeah, he sounds great. And I'd come back and tell Ben and tell his agent and his agent would say like, yeah, we already sent him the manuscript and they declined it. Um, but he kept pushing. Uh, he eventually published the collection Brief, Brief Encounters with Che Guevara, I, I think in 2007. Uh, it won the Penn Hemingway. Um, then he had, then the story, the, the, the Gladwell essay came out in which Gladwell called him a genius. Um, and then he was writing, I'd seen him soon after that. And he was writing a novel called the Texas itch. And, uh, and I'd read parts of it and I thought it was really great. Um, but he turned it into his agent or to the editor at little Brown. I can't remember. And basically the message was like, just start over. And, um, he put, he put the book in a drawer and then he wrote, um, Billy Lynn's long halftime walk. And that won the LA times book prize. It, it may have won the National Book Award. It was a finalist. Uh, uh, Ang Lee made it into a film. Um, and he's another guy. Like, that he'll talk about, like, the hard work of writing. Like, there is, like the sort of overnight success. I mean, I, you know, I think the publishing industry can be sort of fascinated by that. But um, there are these other paths. And he's one that, like, his success is really hard won. And um, he's somebody who seems like he'll be, you know, he's, he's I don't know, like, He's weathered in a way that he's not going to stop. So, so anyway, but in sort of in short, like the idea is right. And the publishing, if you pick up readers along the way, that's great. But don't let it, don't write for, uh, for readers. No, yeah. Like Amy Hempel said, she, she got the audience she wanted, right? She didn't want right. everybody. And on the flip side of that, I think there's, you know, authors like Grace Paley who self-proclaimed she was lazy, their only reason she she wrote so little is that um, she was busy being a mother and an activist and all of this other stuff. Um, but because she was such a sentence writer and so focused and a poet first, um, she was sort of afforded that that unlike what you're talking about with Josh, as far as getting down and dirty every day, um, her work came that way. Um, I don't know how many people still read her though, but. <laughs> So, Jamie, curious, for those who do want to submit stuff, how do you know when a story is ready to submit? Is there ever a point where you just realize, okay, I can't do anything else with this story? Shit, you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you just, just like, um, for me, it's a feeling. Um, I tend to write well when I'm in, in artist residencies. I don't really write outside of that. I think being a mom and all this other stuff. But um, I had been working on my novel for six years just 
just block, block. And I spent eight weeks at McDowell a few years ago and pounded out 20 pages, 200 pages. And it was done. I hadn't even, I mean, I draft as I go clearly. So I hadn't even stopped and reread. Um, but I immediately queried the agents who were interested, um, who had, you know, sent me stuff after my grant to piece. Um, and I sent it out as is, but I was lucky enough to find an agent who like Michael, um, wanted to work with me to sort of, you know, compress and consolidate and, 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 and make the arc work. But I think what, who is it? Carver? I, somebody said, you know, when you're putting a period in and taking it out, um, that's, that's always good. But do we ever, how many of us contemporarily get to that point where we're worried about that? Um, I think that's what, you know, great editors are for. And, and Michael, how common is it for editors to, I mean, I, for Zoe Chobe, it sounds like you're very willing to work with writers. Is that a common thing throughout other literary magazines that you're aware of? Um, the good ones. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that um, there was, yeah, I mean, I think that, I think so. Um, I think it's, uh, it's fine. I mean, I was just, I had just, I'd actually done an event recently with, with Karen Russell and we were talking about this because now it's been, we're realizing that it's been uh, 15 years and we've worked on, you know, six or seven stories. And wow. um, this idea of uh, it's, it's establishing trust and uh, that we're both kind of like that as an editor, um, I guess achieving the sense with the reader, that, with the writer that you understand what that writer is trying to do and that you're also trying to sort of serve that end and that you're challenging the writer with also um, empowering the writer to say uh, no. Um, and also like not making it like binary uh, choices um, that it's my, your way or my way. Um, I think a lot of the best solutions come when I've pointed out something and uh, offered a solution and um, the writer will come back and with a third way um, that I couldn't have anticipated. And it, that's why that's this person's talent. And, it, and it's, that's really what works. Um, but I do think in terms of as a writer, when you get into the editorial process, um, you know, the, uh, I think a good editor is just like a good reader um, pointing things out. Um, I think, Asking question. yeah, I mean, I, I think I take, yeah. And I think like I'll, take sort of a more active role um, at, at a line level, maybe than some editors do, at least I understand. But well, my, um, my experience with the, John Freeman was much like that. Mm. Um, when John Freeman was at Granta mm. um, after the um, NBCC. And then also Patrick Ryan, who's now at One Story. I think they both come to editing in, in, in a way that, that you're talking about. I think young writers or budding writers or the writers who I'm mentoring through Gotham are deathly afraid of, people not existing like you, right? They don't believe that. Um, so they seek out mentors, which I think it's great to have mentorship ahead of that relationship. But I always tell them how intimate that editor-writer relationship should be if, you're, if you found the right home, right? Yeah, and I think from the, from the writer's perspective, um, and again, I mean, I've, uh, I've sort of uh, been on both sides and um, the, uh, I think the things that, like, you know, we, so you get to this point where the, the work you feel like is ready to go out. And then maybe you're sending it to, like maybe you're workshopping it through Gotham. Uh, you're sending it to friends. 
um, or if, if it gets acquired somewhere and you're working with an editor, um, that there is, you do need, the process that happens after that uh, is, is like you're getting sort of this feedback and how do you process that feedback um, without losing your way in the story because you know it better than anyone else. And I always feel like the, and I always tell writers this, and this is what I always abide in my own work, that the, the, the edits that, the, the, the edits that you should take are kind of the things you knew anyway. It's the stuff that resonates. It's the stuff that's like, yeah, I knew that. Like I knew that this transition from this part of the story to that one was totally awkward. I've tried it 60 different ways. And this was just the best way I found it worked. And if somebody points out like that doesn't work, you should thank that person and listen to that person. Yes. Uh, there are going to be other people who are reading things and they just misunderstand something and they'll try and push it in a different way. Um, and like an example, uh, if anybody caught uh, there, I mean, just sort of using uh, Karen Russell as an example, cause she's kind of top of mind. Um, she was, when her new collection came out, uh, Orange World, there were two stories that were going to be sort of tentpole stories and uh, in, in place in the collection. And um, so she'd sent, and we've just worked a lot together. So she sent both of those stories to me. And um, one of them uh, was um, uh, called The Tornado Auction. And we published it, and I think on our summer twi- 2017 issue that Jeff Bridges designed. But basically, like the story, it, it comes to this point at the end, and, the, and the, the character is on a precipice. And I'd misread the ending, and I'd in kind of like, suggested a rewritten that um pulled that that totally inverted the story but it's what i thought she was going for and so then she had said like that's not at all what i'm going for and the ending that she then rewrote which was incredible um was so much like deeper than it changed the whole story for me it was so much deeper than i under like what I understood this story was about. Um, and th- there was such a commitment in the character. And I think, uh, you know, and like we've been working together for 15 years, but uh, hopefully if you're working with an editor who really cares about your work, that editor makes you feel that way that you can say like, no, like that's not what I'm going for. And don't like, don't lose your own place in it. But I do think like when somebody tells you something's wrong and you kind of knew and you're trying to kind of like paint in that corner to like hide some shadows, like, listen to them and, and try and, and try and fix it. So I, I want to briefly touch on rejection before we get into audience Q&A. So Jamie, I want to start with you, especially, you know, unfortunately for writers, we often do face form rejections where, where there's not really feedback there. As a writer, how do you learn from these rejections and how do you stay positive through it? Oh, they're badges of honor. Um, it, it's it's been a while since I've collected them. So when I collected them, they were, you know, in the mail. And I remember the first I got from, I think it was the New Yorker Atlantic Monthly, where there was a handwritten thing, like, oh, this is truly publishable, blah, blah, blah. My roommate at the time, who was at the new school, like, ran down our six-story apartment in the East Village and ran out and got a frame and framed it. And it's still actually sitting on my writing desk right now because it reminds me um, how important rejection is. Um, you just, you have to have many, you know? Yeah. And, and Michael, when it comes to rejecting applica- or submissions to Zoetrope, how far do you have to get into a story before you know that you won't be accepting it? Do you, do you read all the story or do you just, yeah, do you we go- read them all. Okay. 
but no, I mean, we read them all. I think like if you, you know, if you get to, you know, if it's a 20 page story and I'm on page 12 and I feel like the only way that this story is publishable is if like you cut the pages and all of a sudden the next eight pages become like a different story. Like I may read those last eight pages pretty quickly, but like, I mean, we do, re we appreciate that people send stuff to us. Um, we can read, especially that first cut, like fairly efficiently. Um, I do, we have a team of uh, 10 to 15 um, volunteer readers who will, uh, who are all like, you know, professional readers that we've qualified who, will help with that first round. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, and, and, you know, and as far as like rejections go, I've, I've kind of gone back and forth. Like in the beginning, when I started editing, I was, I was always sort of writing the rejection letter that I would kind of want, which was like, you know, sort of giving my perspective. And, you know, I, I've just kind of gotten to the point, both out of necessity as, as we get so many stories, and then also just out of respect for the story and the, and the recognition, this is a subjective process. I mean, it is frequent that we'll see stuff that we've rejected that's in, you know, the Paris Review, the Atlantic, the New Yorker. I'm sure we're publishing stuff that they're declining. Um, and I just feel like if I don't see the value in this story um, such that I'm willing to commit with it to it and work with a writer on it, I don't want to change. I don't want to, you know, affect how that person develops that story with like sort of unsolicited advice. Um, like I want to, I think that that right, that what that story needs is to find the editor that really believes in it and is willing to commit to it and listen to that person. Like, you know, if I'm, if I'm not seeing what you're doing, right. Like I don't want to change not the right that editor. story. Yeah. I think that's yeah. important is the relationship too. It's similar with agents. I think you have to find somebody who really understands and believes and wants to put in that time. Like Michael's talking about um, mm -hmm. with your work for sure. So we're getting a lot of questions. We're going to skip over to Q&A now. Okay. Uh, a lot of questions from people asking if Zoetrope is open to submissions and how to submit to them. So Michael, do you mind telling people, are you guys open? When are you open and how do you submit? Yeah, so we are, um, right now we're in a, a dark period for submissions um, because with the pandemic, we've closed our offices. Um, and we, we've always been, uh, I mean, aside from Gotham, those are the only submissions that we've received. Well, I mean, I guess I get stories from agents. I'll get stories from writers I've worked with before. Um, but outside of that, all our submissions are, um, uh, paper-based and through the U S mail. Um, part of that reason, uh, that we have not evolved with everyone else is that, um, we want, I'm trying to say this in a way that seems that doesn't seem inconsiderate. Uh, but, like basically, we, I don't mind having some barriers to submitting to the magazine because I feel like when people are just sort of submitting things through submittable, it's like checking, you know, like it's so They've easy to submit. But, yeah, yeah. yeah, and like we end up with so much detritus. I mean, not, again, I don't mean to, it's just like we end up with stuff like that we're never going to publish. And yeah. so I feel like it's time for us to process. Like this is, the, the influx of stories is, and is a is a quantity of work that we cannot control and so what i don't mind if it takes like trying to find our address printing a story putting in an envelope and i'm you know i don't want to sort of extend the the trees and the, the carbon footprint but that if you need to send it to us that's fine with me yeah it's um, i feel like it's, it's, it was laborious yeah. for me in the 90s so yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah. should be and and, um, but yeah, so our offices are closed right now. So we don't have really a place to receive these. Um, but so in the process, we, we're going to be reopening uh, next year. I mean, we're still trying to um, get through this 
submissions we have. We'll get to a point where submissions, uh, it's taken us like five months to get back to people. And I always want that to be like two to three months at the most. And so we're trying to get back to the two to three. And then I think now actually we're going to add functionality to the website so people can submit online. So hopefully next year or through your Gotham classes, those come straight to me. Mm. And both of you have mentioned agents. So I want to ask you, Jamie, at what point in a writer, especially when they're looking to publish short stories, at what point do you need an agent in that process? Um, I found that you don't need the agent as much as the agent needs you. Uh, after my, after Granted chose me as one of their emerging voices, like almost a decade ago now, it, agents were everywhere. I was so excited, right? The emails kept coming and, and uh, all this. And I said, oh, well, they want a novel, so I have to write a novel. Well, that's a joke. Right. So um, I just shut it all out. I put them in a folder and I, I just worked. Um, I feel like if an agent's interested, they're not going to lose interest. And that's something I try to, to instill in my students, too, is if you pique their interest, it's not going to go away. So just focus on the work. Shut that off because um, it's not you, you don't need them till you need them. I don't know if that's if that's a good answer, but no, it is. Uh, so, so you, whenever you're first submitting your short stories, don't even don't look for agents. Just worry about no. They'll writing. find you. Trust me, <laughs> they'll find you. Um, gotcha. And they might not be the ones who are right for your work, um, but they're going to ask for a novel. And don't sit down and and rush and and and, and write a novel for them because it just doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and Michael, for you, your experience with agents, because you've mentioned them a bunch as well, is it easier to work with a writer who is unagented? Um, I mean, it doesn't really make a difference to me. Uh, I, there have been times when um, I, there's, you know, there's, I guess, emerging agents or younger agents for the process who expect that they're going to have some sort of role in the editorial process and try to insert themselves. And I've um, <laughs> sort of explained to these people that like you, your, your work is done um, and I'm going to work directly with the writer. So there's a, I mean, an agent may send something to me. Um, and I will say too, there are the only value in an agent is that I see when you're submitting to a magazine is that there are a handful of agents, at least for me over the years that I've come to respect and have relationships. Uh, their, well, like their integrity and their taste. Yeah. And if there'll be agents who will write me and say like this, you need to read this person. Um, or like, I'm just sort of curious what you, like how, what your thoughts on, on this are on this person. This is what I see. And that if they're agents like I've, whose taste I sort of respect and when they say, and they're, and they have credibility, like this is a really, really talented writer. Um, I mean, I don't even know what that means. I guess I go into it. It doesn't really change the way I read it. Cause still like, it depends on it. what matters is the work. Yeah. Um, but at least whatever, like that may like pique my interest. So maybe instead of reading the story, like in three days, I try to read it in two days or something. But, um, and I do think that if you can find an agent, there are some really, really good agents out there that have, re that are really, really smart. And if you can find an agent who has insight into your work and knows like where to place it. And I think if the, that person has a credibility with me, I'm sure they have credibility with like little Brown and cannot from these places. Like, um, those are, they can be helpful. So I, I, this is the part in the show where I let both of you go. So thank you both so much for being here. Your insight was incredible. Much appreciated. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much, Josh. And thanks everyone for participating. Thanks, Michael.
All right. So for those of you, we have one, one more announcement to make before I close off the show. So uh, in case you missed any of the discussion, we are going to have this available on YouTube and on all major podcasting platforms. Uh, if not later today, then by tomorrow. Also, next week, uh, we're going to be talking about humor writing, uh, same time, same place. And also, also next week uh, is the Gotham Writers Conference. So if you are interested in the process of finding an agent or writing a book or publishing a book, uh, there, you can still sign up for the panels and presentations where we will cover all of that. So thank you all again for being here, and we will see you next week.